Amen. You may be seated. So today I'm going to do something I've never in my life done. I'm going to start preaching through a gospel, one of the four gospels, obviously Luke. And what I want to do, um, Luke is a very long gospel, what I want to do is I actually want to just read kind of selections, but I'm going to just fill in a little bit in between, kind of just reminding you of stuff. I'm sure you've read these stories many times. So let's, let's pick up um, in Luke's gospel, chapter 1, and where I skip, I'll just mention kind of what's going on in between. So the gospel opens this way, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And then we get into the story, you know it well, of this old priest named Zechariah. His wife Elizabeth is barren. They can't have children. One day he's in the temple. He sees the angel. The angel promises a son. Zechariah says, how can it be? The angel says, fine, you won't talk till he's born since you don't believe me. Elizabeth conceives. Um, and we pick up then in verse 26 of the chapter, in the sixth month, so Elizabeth is now conceived, and we move to a very different scene. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary runs off and visits Elizabeth. And you remember that scene where she visits Elizabeth, and Elizabeth said, The baby leaped in my womb. The mother of my Lord is here. And Mary bursts into song, and she sings what we call her Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he's brought down the the high and lifted up the low, and she celebrates. We move on in the chapter. Eventually, uh, Mary goes home. Elizabeth gives birth. They name him John. The, name, the angel gave that name to that baby, Jesus' cousin John. And then Father Zechariah breaks out in song, and he sings what we call the Benedictus. You know, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he just celebrates and the child grows and becomes strong in spirit. God is with him until he begins his public ministry. And then we pick up in chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in, a, in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. And bless us, Lord God, mightily as we hear this word today. In Jesus we ask. Amen. 
This spring, um, Sarah and I redid pretty much all the floors in our basement, like right down to like the bottom of the basement, the concrete. I guess this is what you do in middle age for dating. Um, and I always have this very odd feeling in my house when I either break into a wall and like touch the studs behind the wallboards, or I'm, especially when I get under floors, especially down in my basement, I get down underneath the flooring and I'm touching like the foundation of my house. I just have this weird sort of thing that goes through my, my head of like, I wonder who the last eyes were to see this or the last hands to touch this concrete way down underneath all the tile. <laughs> I mean, it's probably, this, prob- this person was probably lived in the 1950s. It's like when I'm, when I'm way down in the foundations of my house and I'm touching this stuff that maybe no one's touched for, I don't know, 80 years, I find myself touching history. I, I find myself touching the story of my home before I lived there. But it's not just dead history. This is very much present active history because that history every single day is holding up the house that we live in and holding up our life in the house. So it's history I'm touching, but it's history that's still doing its thing every day we live in that house. And what I actually want to do in Luke's gospel, and maybe God willing we'll get to Acts as well, is this series is going to try to descend down into the deep foundations it might actually be a little bit more accurate to call these roots of everything that's going on in the visible world. Now, you guys are living in the visible world, and you can see it, you can read about it in the news, you know, it might be local stuff, might be global stuff, but there's a lot going on in the visible world. And what this series is going to do is go down because into the, go into the foundations of things, because as, as stuff is unfolding in the world, what I, what I just want us to constantly remind ourselves of is that all of this happening in the world is actually sitting on something. It is resting on something that happened in history. And that thing that happened in history continues to be present and active, upholding and shaping everything that goes on until the end of history. We're going to go down into the basement of reality, and we're going to see what the world's sitting on, if you like. And this thing that it's sitting on is still shaping, actually, the whole whole of history. There's a very interesting line in in what we call the Old Testament, which I I just find so picturesque. It's, It's Hannah singing, and she says, The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Right? There are pillars that hold up the world, and God has set the world on those pillars. And it's these deep pillars, these deep roots that hold up our world that I really want to explore in this series. Now, we're in the opening of Luke's Gospel, and one of the things you will notice in great books, I hope some of you guys read great books or if you watch great movies, one of the things that you will notice in both of these is that there's always a lot more going on in the opening scenes than meets the eye. I find when I read a great book, I have to go back to the beginning when I'm finished because now I want to read the opening again. Or if I see a great movie, I want to go back and watch the beginning again because I realize I missed a whole bunch of stuff. And it's kind of that way with Luke's gospel. What he's doing here in these opening two or three chapters especially is he is laying out some some big pieces here. And when we get these pieces laid out in front of us, what we're going to see is together they they reveal a kind of map of the journey that Luke's going to take us on through his gospel and through Acts. Now, I want to begin with the first piece, which is just the audience in the first four verses. 
So have a look at that. The first four verses, I want to just start with the audience. This, this guy kind of matters. Luke's writing to a, a gentleman named Theophilus. And this is the only place he's mentioned in the Bible. We don't have a lot of definite info about him, but we can, we can I think, very responsibly surmise that he was a real person. He wasn't just a, a code name for some group or some other person who's not named. He was a real person named Theophilus. His name, of course, being uh, Greek, means he was a Gentile. So he's a Gentile disciple of Jesus. But what's interesting about Theophilus is, though he's a Gentile, he's not a Jew um, by birth, but he's obviously schooled in Israel's scriptures. He, like, he knows the, the, the Bible of Israel pretty well, and that means that he's probably educated more generally. He, he's a reader, um, not necessarily common for that time, and, and so he's got some education. And we can also surmise that this Gentile follower of Jesus, who he's not, he didn't grow up as a Jew, but he's, he knows their scriptures well, and now he's following Jesus. He's also has some pretty significant social status because um, he's most excellent Theophilus. So you get a little bit of a picture of this man to whom uh, Luke is writing. And think with me, too, about when, when, what's, what's Theophilus' world like? Well, um, Luke finishes the Gospel of Acts with Paul, the Apostle Paul, imprisoned in Rome. And so the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, there are two, part, there are two volumes in the, in the same series, um, they were probably written sometime between when Paul was imprisoned in Rome at the, at the end of Acts and when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. So Paul is in prison like, roughly A.D. 60, uh, uh, 62, and then the, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. So it's about an eight-year, probably somewhere in that eight-year span. And if you really think about what it was like to be a Christian then, man, what a crazy world. I mean, the Jews had really turned on the church, uh, King Herod, at one point, it really turned on the church. Um, back in the book of Acts, you, you, you've got the Romans. They're, they're kind of viewing, I mean, Nero is, you know, the Caesar. You remember some of the stories about how Nero treated Christians. Horrific stuff. You know, Christians, eventually Paul is executed by Nero, uh, by beheading. And, and you try to imagine, you know, Theophilus, he, he grew up a Gentile, but he's a, he's a Christian now. He's a follower of Jesus, and he's living in this just crazy world. We got, you know, the Jerusalem forces that kind of hate Christians, you, you know, the, and then you got the Roman force that isn't necessarily a great friend of Christians, and it's just a tumultuous political world, and the Jews are going to, the Romans are going to turn on the Jews soon, and, you know, it's just, it's just, there's a lot going on. And most Christians are kind of scattered throughout the Roman Empire of the time. They're, you know, they got to be very careful. They don't, end up on the wrong end of persecution, and I, I just find it so interesting, as, as Luke's writing to this Theophilus, and this is maybe put a bit clumsily, but you, you, you see in verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, what this man needs as he follows Jesus in this world <laughs> that he's in, and by the way, Jesus is not around anymore. You know, you're following this man, this God-man who disappeared and went back to heaven, we're told, and like you're, you know, you can't see him, and, and you're trying to follow him, be faithful to him, and the world's kind of crazy, and you can't even trust a lot of the religious people, and it's just, it's a, what Luke realizes Theophilus needs, verse 4, this man just needs assurance. You're not crazy. You're not crazy. I mean, that's pretty, a clumsy way of saying what Luke says quite elegantly, that you may have certainty, <laughs> concerning the things you've been taught. You're not crazy, Theophilus. I want to write a whole book to tell you you're not crazy. I want to write a whole gospel to tell you that these Jesus events that you have heard about, they really happened. 
They really did. And they are every bit as world-changing as you've been told. They're every bit as foundational. Really, all of reality kind of orbits around these things, Theophilus. You are not crazy. I want you to have assurance. And I just want to stop here. It's a little early to say this, but I just want to stop and give a little application here. I usually give this at the end, but I just want to stop here and say, and we'll see this throughout. Beloved, this tells us something very important, because some of you are living in a crazy world. When the world is stormy, we need teaching. We need teaching. That's not what we usually think we need. We need orderly instruction in the things we have actually already learned. When the winds are just raging, and they might be doctrinal winds in so-called religious circles, they might be cultural winds, feels like things are coming apart, they could be just situational winds in your life. When the things get crazy, you need less YouTube and more competent instruction in the Word of God. That's what you and I need. We need what the Bible calls the gospel. We need to be catechized. We need theology. We need to go back to the foundations of God and his kingdom and his son and his spirit and his word and his promises. That's what you and I need. We need to hear that stuff again. We know it. I mean, we've heard it many, many times, but we need to to learn afresh what we have already learned because this, beloved saints, winds being what they may be, this is the unsinkable ship. The word of God is the unsinkable ship. This is the ship with its firm anchor and its iron mast and its unshreddable sails. This is what you and I need. But not just you and your Bible, because we get weird with our Bibles. Competent instruction, the kind of ordered instruction that Luke is giving to Theophilus here. That's really what we need. Lots more of that. And that's not usually what we think of when the winds start blowing. But Luke says, you know, just come back to the gospel, Theophilus. Let's just spend a bunch of time in the gospel. And so here we are, you know, Luke's bringing us down into these deep foundations. We find ourselves very quickly among these mighty roots and pillars that hold up the world. And no sooner do we get here with Luke than I want you to notice the allusions, not illusions, but allusions. So we've seen the audience. Now look at the allusions. Because once we get down into kind of the basement and we're looking around, Luke, it's like what he does is he says, now I want to actually open up a whole bunch of more doors. I just want to remind you, Theophilus, of a whole other set of roots and foundations. Because the story of Jesus rests on another story. And what story is that, beloved? The story of Jesus rests upon, and in fact, it is incomprehensible apart from a whole other story. What story is that? True, the incarnation, but that's part of the story of Jesus. The whole story of Jesus rests upon what? The story of Israel, yes, David and Abraham, and even before that, Noah, all the way back to Adam. Like, there's this whole preceding story. God has spent, people wonder about this, God has spent thousands of years getting Israel ready for this one who's now here. And what, this whole other story that prepares the way for Jesus, and so what permeates these early chapters is Luke just, like, it's like he wants to show Theophilus what we've been waiting for, Theophilus, (laughs) All this stuff that God's been doing, and you know the scriptures of Israel well. You know all these stories. If you look back over those thousands of years of all that God has been doing, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And I just want you to know, Theophilus, that it's here. And Theophilus, Gentile that he is, he's part of the we who have been waiting. 
You know, you're now part of the story of Israel, and we've been waiting all this time, and I want you to know all that, it's, it's being fulfilled, Theophilus, now. But I want you to notice, you, you, I, you didn't hear me read that, did you? Luke doesn't say that explicitly. He doesn't say, now, Theophilus, straight out of the gate, let me remind you of the story of Israel. But I want you to notice the allusions. He's a master writer, and he just fills these early pages with these allusions, these hints. He expects that we know the scriptures of Israel well, and he wants us to immediately kind of hear the echoes of all that story here in the Jesus story. And I want to ask you guys if you caught a couple of these. I want to see if you caught some of the illusions. Did you notice that immediately in this story, we have a righteous man, a righteous old man and woman who can't have children? Now, don't strain yourselves. Who's that remind you of? Abraham. And Luke's kind of alluding to the fact, maybe what I'm about to tell you about Theophilus has something to do with God's covenant with Abraham, just possibly. There's another really cool illusion here, because right out of the gate, there's this odd little series of events with an old priest, a temple, a promised son, and a young mother singing of God bringing down the proud and exalting the humble. What's that sound like? Come on. You're killing me. Thank you. The opening of Samuel and the books of Samuel and Kings, of course, are about God's covenant with David, right? That whole huge thing God does with the kingship and, you know, the, 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 the monarchy. And, and that's just maybe what we're about to read has something to do with God's covenant with David, too. And then here's a really weird one. This angel Gabriel shows up. Do you know the last time Gabriel appeared in the Bible? Now, this is crazy. The last time this angel made an appearance, you know what it, what it was? What, what happened? He is speaking to the prophet Daniel, and the last recorded words of Gabriel in the Bible are him giving a timeline of 70 weeks of years from when the decree goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem that was given by King Cyrus of Persia in the year 538 B.C. From that time until, Gabriel said, a Mashiach, a Messiah, a prince comes. There'll be 70 weeks of years. Daniel, I want you to know the timeline from where you are to the Messiah And we are left wondering, when Gabriel now suddenly appears again, maybe something here is about that timeline, the prophecies of Daniel. And then the last one maybe is not quite so obvious. When when Zechariah, that old priest, sings after his son John is born, he says God has visited and redeemed his people. What language is echoing there? God visiting in a suffering people and redeeming them with a strong right hand. Well, this is the exodus. Maybe what's about to happen here is going to be another whole exodus, the likes of which the world has never seen. And what Luke is doing with these allusions is he is helping us to remember that the Je- you cannot understand what the Jesus story has to do with the present or the future if you don't understand what it has to do with the past. Do you follow? You really can't understand what the Jesus story has to do with the present or the future if you don't understand how it's connected to the, to the, to the past. And so Luke is just alluding to all of this stuff in Israel's story, their scriptures. And it's against that glorious background that Luke then can begin to show something of the stunning significance of the arrival of this child of Mary. Having looked at the audience and the illusions, the last thing I want to look at today is the arrival. And I want to zero in on verses 30 through 35 of chapter 1. You've got them there in your notes. Look at those with me. Verses 30 through 35 of chapter 1. I want to just talk about the arrival. So Luke has been kind of alluding to the background story, and now he he kind of zeroes in with Gabriel and Mary on the arrival. And basically what Gabriel says in this birth announcement is that this child's arrival 
is going to be two things. It's going to be the hinge of history and the reunion of realms. The hinge of history and the reunion of realms. First of all, in verses 30 through 31, it'll be the hinge of history. This birth, Gabriel says, you're going to conceive, bear a son called Jesus. He'll be great, called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Now, what, J what Gabriel's saying to Mary here is, Mary, this is not just another thing in a series. You know, Henry Ford, history's just one bleeping thing after another. It isn't, Henry. There's this. This is not just that one more thing in a series. What Gabriel is saying here is that, Mary, this thing we have been waiting for that will then be the thing from this time forward, this is it, the birth of this child and his coming to the throne of his father David. All subsequent history will unfold in the gravitational field of this event. So no matter what goes on from now till the end of the world, it's all going to unfold within the gravitational field ruled by guided by, shaped by, formed by this event. This is the hinge on which history turns. Well, you know this, of course, is exactly what Israel's scriptures taught us to expect, isn't it? Because for God's people all the way back to Eden, they thought about history as divided into these two great ages. There was the age that they were living in, but they were always looking for this coming age. They called it the latter days, church I grew up in thought the latter days were some like weird conglomeration of things that was going to happen right before Jesus returns for the last time. For, for the scriptures of Israel, the latter days were this coming age in which God was finally going to bring that Savior, that Mashiach, that Messiah, who was going to, you know, crush the serpent's head, atone for sins, give rest, take the throne of his father David bless all the families of the earth with justice and peace. And what Gabriel, they were, this was the expectation. That was the age to come. And Gabriel says to Mary, well, he's here, he, you're about to give birth to that, that Savior. That coming age we've all been waiting for, Mary, it's going to begin in your womb. Because you cannot miss the allusion in what he says there in verse 33. You can't miss the allusion to Isaiah's prophecy of the child that God would give. And notice what was said about him in Isaiah chapter 9, of the increase of that child's government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And Gabriel says, here it is, the hinge of history. And Mary just, she just starts singing. She sings, God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. He's been promising this. This was our story. This was our expectation. God has done it. And the saints have been singing ever since because what you and I are able to see now, looking out at all the craziness of the world, from Ukraine to, you know, Haiti to wherever it might be, we look out at the events of history, and what you realize is all of this going on in the world right now, in Washington, in Albany, all of it, political or just local people in their lives, all of this is a kind of visible crust beneath which the kingdom of this child is unfolding. That's how we see, that, that's reality. That's what God has allowed us to see. That is what Dallas Willard calls the divine conspiracy. I have heard so many conspiracy theories in the last three years. There are some very creative people in this world. 
This is the divine conspiracy. This is what God is doing behind the scenes in the shadows of the world. Whatever opposes this child's kingdom will fade away like smoke before fire, like chaff before the wind. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. They will not be able to stand. They will fall before it. That is the promise of Jesus. That's what's really going on under the visible surface of the world because the hinge of history has come. But Gabriel goes further. He doesn't just just tie this birth to the whole history of the two ages. It's also, you'll notice in verse 35, the reunion of realms. Because throughout Israel's story, there is a heaven and earth problem. And I've been trying over the last year and a half or so to try to help us get away from this, I think, very unhelpful idea that heaven is some place we go up there after this. Like, I'm done living downstairs, now I die and I go upstairs, and I live in the other place. I'm trying to get us away from that, because in the Bible, in Israel's scriptures, man lived on the earth, human beings lived on the earth, and they would look up and see the heavens. And there's obviously like this reality above us and beyond us. And throughout Israel's scriptures, that kind of idea of the heavens above and beyond us, it becomes a way of imagining and thinking about the realm of God's life and God's rule. God's life and God's rule, which is not a space. And it's not, we're not waiting for that someday. The realm of God's life and God's rule, it is truly above and beyond us, but it is also present always. It is just another dimension, an invisible spiritual dimension of present reality. Heaven and earth are always coexisting because God is present to and in and with his creation as the creator and sustainer of all things. Heaven, in that sense, is always here and now. God is present. Even as he is above and beyond us, he is present. But the problem between heaven and earth is that our fellowship with heaven, the fellowship between heaven and earth, our fellowship with God It's limited by our creatureliness because right now we don't have bodies that can necessarily have a lot of access to that heavenly reality, and it's ruptured by our sin. Even if we had the capacity to somehow connect to heavenly reality in our creatureliness, we have a sin barrier. We we can't be in the presence of the holy God. Now, bring that to what Gabriel says about the child in verse 35. In this child, he says, heavenly reality is about to enter a woman's womb. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. He will come upon you. And this being to be created in Mary's womb is going to be one in whom heaven and earth are perfectly united. This this child will be fully in Mary's womb, totally earthy in that sense, and yet mysteriously not of her womb. (laughs) Did not originate there. His origins are in heaven. And in this child, there's going to be no rupture of fellowship between heaven and earth because of sin, because he will have no sin. He will be a living, breathing realm of God's perfect rule, perfectly obedient. Everything will be just as it's supposed to be in this one, as heaven and earth are in perfect fellowship. And in the end, though Gabriel doesn't say it here, the scriptures as they continue to unfold tell us that in the end, this child, having been killed in our as our sacrifice for sins, he is going to rise from the dead in another human body that is so glorified it can dwell in heaven and earth. 
It can be with God the Father in heaven, and it can be upon earth. And even further, the apostles, as they later work this out, we are told that through this child, this king, who can dwell in heaven and earth, God, his, God's whole humanity, and in fact, we're even told in the end, the very cosmos itself, the earth and all of its fullness, will be made like him in his glorious body, and heaven and earth will be in perfect fellowship for all the ages of eternity. And that is why the gospel writers will often say, the kingdom from heaven has drawn near. Heaven is here. It has come to earth and it will reign. It's the hinge of history, the reunion of realms. That's the arrival of the child. I'm going to wrap up with just three, ta- three takeaways for now. So what do you do with these first couple of chapters? Three quick takeaways. Number one, beloved, God is faithful. God is faithful. If you see nothing else in these first couple of chapters, God with absolute unchallengeable sovereignty and with perfect serenity, he keeps every one of his promises without fail, and that is what is celebrated in these early chapters. God has kept his promises when we long ago thought it could not happen. God never fails. He is faithful. And I just want to say with the psalmist, Selah, pause over that. So often what you and I need in our darkest times is just to know God is faithful. No matter what you see, no matter what you feel, God is faithful. Second takeaway. God's work cannot be measured on a human scale. His work cannot be measured on a human scale. I think that's the point of these first seven verses of chapter two. Because if it starts, you know, there's a decree. Caesar Augustus, big Caesar, important Caesar, powerful, you know, Quirinius. You know, the, the, the wheels of the world are working in the Roman Empire. But we go on, and we're in this little town, Nazareth, and then later Bethlehem, and there's these little people. And in these, obs- this, uh, these obscure corners of the world, among these completely insignificant people, it's like Luke is kind of juxtaposing, you know, you've got Caesar Augustus, but it's here in this corner with these people who don't matter at all. This is, where, this is where the great things of history are happening. This is the stuff that's worth waiting centuries for. Not Caesar Augustus, <laughs> but this. The most important things, the most momentous things are happening here in this little corner. This is where it's going on. You cannot measure God's work on a human scale. And so it still is today, which brings us to an extremely important final takeaway. If you can't measure God's work on a human scale, third takeaway, the mark of God's people, what really sets us apart as God's people is that we are attentive and responsive to him, to him. It's interesting, these little people, they have lives, but there is nothing whatsoever to indicate, as you look at their, the, the story of, of what they do in these early chapters, these little people are not occupied with princes. They're not obsessing about Caesars. They're not all worked up, apparently, about this, that, or the other thing that's going on in the world, the, even the big wheels of the world, nor, interestingly, do you get the impression that they are just obsessed with their tiny little trivialities of life. 
You know, because that's our weakness, isn't it? Both ways. There's two ditches. You can either be all tied up in all this big stuff happening in the world, and you're just like, you know, always focused on all the big wheels, or you can just be so lost in the tiny little minutia of your little life where you're not even going to breathe that much longer. I mean, does it matter that much? And these people are kind of doing neither. What you see, their kind of hearts are really, you know, they're doing their thing, but their hearts are really attentive to and responsive to God, whether it's waiting on him or rejoicing in what he's done, crying out to him or just suffering patiently, like they are looking at God, they're looking at God's promises, and they're looking at God's callings, they're doing what God's called them to do. That's what they're attending to. That's what they're responding to. God is great on the horizon of their hearts and minds because we are actually not fit to really tackle the practical things of the world unless our hearts and minds are full of the permanent things of the world, beloved. If you want to be an effective church, effective salt and light in our generation, we're really not fit to deal with the practical things of the world if we are not fixed upon in our hearts and minds the permanent things of the world. Back to the foundations, back to the roots, back to God. Amen. And so, Lord, we pray as we make our way through this gospel that you will give us great rest great joy, great hope, and great zeal in seeking this kingdom you've brought to earth. In Jesus we pray. Amen.